This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. Hey, everybody. Today's guest is Trevor Keith, guitarist and lead vocalist for the Southern California band Face to Face. Uh, I've known Trevor for many, many years. Uh, Less Than Jake has had the pleasure uh, of touring uh, with Face to Face uh, many times. Uh, The first time in 1997 as part of the Snowcore tour, and most recently in 2018. And uh, we get along famously with these guys. Uh, Love love the band. Um, Trevor picked Disconnected to discuss today, and uh, there was lots to talk about. Uh, Trevor uh, and original bassist Matt Riddle were high school buddies who both had a love for Iron Maiden, uh, they were metalheads, and uh, they both came to punk rock a little later because they were more uh, metal as teens, but they related to the pop sensibilities of punk rock. Uh, Disconnected was created out of uh, a sort of mimicking of the Fugazi song, Merchandise. Uh, Trevor talked about how he uh, doesn't usually write lyrics first. The verse melody came to him really quickly during uh, the writing of this song. We talked about how once uh, Disconnected got added to K-Rock, it uh, completely blew up their shows in California and led to a ton of exposure for the band. Uh, And I told Trevor that I still hear it played uh, on the radio every time I'm in California. Um, And Trevor talks about uh, that that anybody that has a long career uh, in music finds a way to reconnect emotionally to songs that they wrote long ago when they play them live. For all this and much more, stay tuned. Wow, I, I got to thinking. I don't know where the years went. Uh, <laughs> first time we toured with you guys was 1997 on the Snowcore tour. Uh, oh that would have been February of 97, uh, 23 years ago now. Um, and I, of course, uh, had your had your record when it was uh, still on Doctor Strange, the Don't Turn Away record. I've been a fan uh, since 91, 92. And uh, Trevor, uh, you know, I'd asked him, what song he'd like to pick from his career. And um, I was so stoked that you picked this song. I didn't think you were going to because there's just, you know, uh, and I only say that because there of what we'll get into in a moment of talking about the different variations of the songs. And right. a, lot of, a lot of times artists, uh, they, they're, they're sick of talking about one of their most popular songs. But from a fan uh, listener perspective, this is going to be, be great for the listener. So I'm really happy. Trevor picked uh, Disconnected. Uh, which, you know, you could have picked pretty much any song from your career, man. I'm, uh, yeah, you know, as you know, huge fan, uh, love all your songs, but, uh, thank you. A lot to talk about with this one. So, so take us back now. Um, this was on the first record. Do you remember where you were? Uh, and do you remember writing disconnected? Yeah. I mean, it was some time ago and, uh, I, this is the first time I've I've done a podcast like this where we're discussing a song, um, which is really great. But I was a slightly nervous beforehand. I'm not really nervous. Just I felt like really unprepared going, dude, what do I even remember about <laughs> <laughs> writing anything from that time period? But actually, I I, I just kind of was chatting about it with my wife and I was like, ah, actually, I do. I do remember quite a bit. So um now, hopefully my memories aren't, 
you know, false memories and uh, maybe Matt Riddle, if he's ever listening at some point to this <laughs> podcast is going to be like, no, nope, that's not how it happened at all. But uh, yeah, I, I, I remember some stuff, so we definitely can chat about it. Um, I just wanted to say to what you were, you were talking about earlier in the call or, or on the, when you were t- setting up the song and saying it was unexpected that I would pick this song. You know, I, I just, it, it's one of those things like, we make music and, and as artists, we, they're all our children, right? These songs. Sure. Sure. Um, and you know how devastating it feels to put out, well, maybe you don't because, you know, less than Jake has always put out nothing but top notch records that everyone loves. Right. Uh, so you've we, never we had try. any moments of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, at least you think so. Right. And we yeah. all do. I'm a legend. Artists. I'm like, a legend in my own mind, Trevor. <laughs> all of our, every, every new album to us is our best album ever. But exactly. Uh, if you've been around as long as, as our bands have, you've made records that have been more popular and less popular with your, with your fans. So, uh, <clears throat> having had that experience, it's like, you know, we do this because of the fans. When, when you're starting out, you, you, that's the only thing you hope for is just like praying to God. Maybe someone will hear your music and connect with it and you can share on that emotional level and, and they'll get you and, and you have that, that great exchange. And, uh, when you do have it, I think early on, it's easy to take it for granted. And then sometimes people get way too in their own head and, and they're like, well, I write stuff that's amazing. But the fact of the matter is, is some songs connect and some don't. And uh, so I, I'm grateful that I've written a song with Matt. I'm, I'm not the sole writer of the song. We both have songwriting credit on it. And uh, and that it has had an impact and, and a connection with people. And we were lucky enough to get airplay in the 90s. And, and uh, you know, it, it's had a big impact on our career. So I think... You know, anyone listening, if they don't even know the band and maybe they don't know my name, they've probably heard Disconnected if they're a fan of punk rock, even if they don't know who we are. <laughs> well, <laughs> 90s you know, punk rock anyway. I, I got to say, that's very humbling and I, of you to say all of that. You know, the, you know the importance uh, of the fans. And that's that's why, you know, I'm talking to you right now. We both are still still in the music industry, uh, have a career because of the fans. Um, uh, certainly there's songs from your career uh, you know, um, from the ignorance is bliss record, the song lost. I've told you this before. That's like, God, like goosebumps, you know, <laughs> one of the most amazing songs, but like, it's, a, it's not as known as disconnected. And I right. would have loved if you would have picked that. I would have definitely chatted with you about it. We would have had a great show, but, uh, the fans are going to love this. So uh, take well, us when back. When you run out of people to interview and I come back on several years from now which is gonna happen maybe we'll talk about lost (laughs) i got a few others i'd probably do walk the walk before lost but anyways okay i'm getting ahead of myself so um (laughs) so uh, take us back now you guys uh the first record came out in 91 but i don't believe fat picked up uh don't turn away till 92 correct uh yeah yeah, okay. you're right about that. And it okay. was a it was a very strange time for it. Matt and I, who really formed face to face, we were high school buddies and um we met because really a love for Iron Maiden. And we were we were more metalheads um than anything else. And uh actually Matt still is to a pretty large degree. 
and I've kind of whittled down everything, but maybe the band Ghost I still like. Who's love them. Band. I still love <laughs> Iron Maiden, of course. But in terms of contemporary metal, I think Matt's still very much into the scene. And I'm not. Anyhow, um, we kind of got frustrated trying to get metal bands off the ground. And, and Matt certainly had the chops for it. But, you know, I was a stocky dude. I still am with a deep voice. And it just didn't really fit that metal kind of dynamic. And um we were we were just trying to reach out creatively and and we kind of went in a new wave direction almost like the cure the psychedelic furs and the smiths and we have some early demos that reflect that songwriting but um we're kind of you know i would consider us johnny come lately's to punk rock in our lives anyway we weren't like you know young angry teens skateboarding around town listening to di and adolescence and dead kennedys we were metal during that time of our lives right so when i discovered punk rock i was in my late teens early 20s and it was you know i was listening to records like bad religions no control and then later against the grain and uh and the Descendants, I think the Two Things at Once record was the one I was able to find at the time that I just absolutely loved. And I related immediately to like the pop sensibilities of that kind of music. Um, but also at the time, another band that was introduced to me was Fugazi. And uh, I think the the newest record at the time was, uh, was uh, Repeater. Mm-hmm. And I loved the song Merchandise which has that jink, 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 jink kind of guitar part in it, that the, the two kind of octave things that you play very rhythmically. Uh-huh. And uh, a lot of what we were doing as a punk rock band in the very beginning was just kind of jamming these riffs that we were familiar with that maybe we were kind of able to play in our rehearsal room. And so disconnected was sort of born out of that mimicking of wanting to do that Fugazi riff for merchandise, at least on my part. Wow. Um, Okay. My, my background wasn't in guitar. I, I started as a singer and then I played like as cheesy as it sounds. I was playing keyboards <laughs> and um, <laughs> I can't see you playing keyboards. You're, well, you're a big, you're I mean, a big stocky guy. <laughs> when, when I was a kid, my introduction to music was keyboard, piano, organ, synthesizer. My, mine, too, my, mine too. So, Oh, okay, cool. I mean, when I'm talking, I was like 12 years old. So yeah, I was, um, I, was I was 10 when I took lessons. Yeah. So I didn't pick up a guitar first. Um, but around 14, 15, I wanted to be in bands. So I took some vocal lessons and I was, I was the singer early on. Um, and then guitar was something that came later at like out of a necessity. So I, I learned to play some basic rock guitar and, that's kind of where I still am today. So my, my early mimicking of that Fugazi riff on the, on the, um, on the B chord, you know, using the lower low E string and then mm-hmm. hitting the octave and just going, gang, 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 gang. Um, we were jam, we were just kind of like having a jam session at practice, you know, like I'm sure you've experienced this multitudes of times. Maybe you still do. I hate when this happens now that I'm older and I've been doing music for 30 <laughs> plus years. But, um, you know, like when you're at rehearsal and everyone just starts playing their own stupid song, like everyone's just riffing. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're at Guitar Center all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. You're like, can we organize <laughs> this? Like, shut up, everybody. That still happens, but 
not much, not as much these days, but it was very much happening back in 91, 92, when we were writing those early songs that would be Don't Turn Away. And so Disconnected was me doing that riff. And then uh, Matt started playing what are the four, you know, tonic chord notes behind it. Yeah, your root notes. Yeah. Uh, And... And then we were like, I remember we were doing that for a while. And then eventually Rob, our drummer at the time, just started playing a beat that supported it. And um, we were sort of just, you know, playing that over and over and over and over again and just kind of really enjoying how all that fit together. You know, that kind of spark. And we're like, are we writing a new song? Like, this seems really cool. Let's keep playing it kind of vibe. And uh, I didn't have, I don't normally write lyrics first. I, I'll, I'll write a melody and then lyrics will follow once I've established what the melodic um, structure of the song is and the, and the rhythm of it. So, um, but I remember that melody came to me really quick, not the chorus, the, the verse melody, the na 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 na. And that was going over these parts that we were all doing individually. I don't think the song developed much further from there um, in that moment. Uh, It might have because one of, well, one of the challenges we put to ourselves was to, we'd we'd written a bunch of other songs too for don't turn away. But this one, this one was like, could we make a song where we never change the chord progression? Like, (laughs) And it was kind of a challenge to us as to Matt and I as songwriters, like, would it be kind of fun and would it be possible to do that for three, four minutes, whatever a pop song length is? And could we maybe just only vary the song with arrangement rather than chord progression? And so that that was the challenge of Disconnected. And uh, and so that's why the guitars are just kind of holding that B octave throughout mm-hmm. the verse and the chord the bass does all the changes to make that you know that that um relationship between those notes and then the, when the chorus is the guitar then joins the bass and does the big chords and then you have that anthemic no kind of thing So yeah, that was, that was sort of how that song came about. And anyone who's a Descendants fan would almost immediately recognize that you don't know what you would give up line was inspired by, I mean, (laughs) clearly I was listening to a lot of the Descendants at the time. Sure. Yeah. And I think that line was just in my brain, which is from a completely different style of song, um, which is, uh, I'm going to be the only one. Wait, what's the name of that song? Uh, the song is called Hope, by the way. Hope. It's hope. <laughs> Thank you. Why Thank couldn't you. I? I kept wanting to say bikeage because you guys, it's not bikeage because I know. Uh, uh, yeah. I wasn't going to say all logistics. I know. No, 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 no. Um, yeah. Okay. Hope, of course. Yeah. So, so now the, the first version was recorded with, with Donnell Cameron and that first version is, is what made Don't, Don't Turn Away, correct? Made the record? Um, Let me, 
Actually, no. Because I because I because because I got some notes here. Let me go through it. So I, the first version was recorded, I believe, with Donnell, but then it was re-recorded with Jim Goodwin. Did the Jim Goodwin version make the Fat Records uh, edition uh, re-release of "Don't Turn Away"? Well, it's it's a little more complex than that, and maybe the liner notes in the history doesn't reflect it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and the reason the reason I want to talk about this because it's fascinating uh, to me, and I hope it is for the listeners, is to see how songs just go through you know just different changes. You re-record them uh, sometimes at the behest of of the the record label, and we'll get to that in a moment when you get to, yeah. to re-record it for Big Choice. But so the first version, who who recorded that one? Produced that one. The Jim Goodwin version that is on Don't Turn Away is the first version of Disconnected. Okay. Okay. And then Jim did remix it for the Over It EP, correct? Uh, No. No, no, actually, that was remixed by Geza X. Wikipedia, <laughs> Wikipedia, you, you're screwing me here. Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, come on. Wikipedia is just people. It's just okay. fans going, I, I know what happened. Okay. I'll so, you, I'll, so Jim had recorded. I never thought it was very interesting before, but I'll tell you the real story. <laughs> please do. Please do. Um, so when we were writing the songs that would initially be Don't Turn Away, I think you know, only maybe six or eight of those ended up going on Don't Turn Away. So um, we met Bill Plaster, who was known as Dr. Strange, Dr. Mm-hmm. Strange Records in in uh, Inland Empire. And we became buddies. Uh, he liked our music. I think we were booked on a show that was going to be like a Dr. Strange showcase night, and it was canceled. So I got in touch with Bill and I was like, are you going to redo this? Because this would be a great showcase for our band. And uh, and and so it ended up that we did a rescheduled show at the Green Door in Ontario. And Bill and his wife at the time, Kim, came out and watched our band. And they'd never seen us before but or heard us. And they liked it right away. And we were like, holy shit, because we were a brand new band at the time. So any any encouragement we got from anyone we were like oh my god dude this is gonna be it you know like you're so naive (laughs) and you think that some little tiny thing's gonna change it all for you but in a lot of ways that did because bill had been running a a really successful mail order business you got to remember this is all pre-internet sure Um, he would find rare punk rock records and then resell them so like he'd go scour the record stores that were local to him find cool punk rock records that were rare vintage or whatever, and then resell them mostly overseas, I think where other people couldn't find it. Um, and, and he was doing pretty well for himself as a side gig. Uh, I think he it eventually took over his job and then he started putting his own records out, you know, bands like Manson youth and the Bolsheviks and some other stuff that was really early. Well, so, rhythm, rhythm collision is how I heard about you guys. Rhythm collision. Yeah. Well, they yeah. were like the only pop punk kind of band. I yeah. Think, in those early days. And I, I had their seven inch and in the liner <clears throat> uh, notes of the seven inch that you, you know, remember they used to stick little flyers in there of upcoming releases. Oh, cool. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And, and that's yeah. how I, that's how I heard don't turn away. Oh, nice. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what I was going to say is uh, we didn't Bill wasn't in a position to, like, make a record with us. But um, no, actually, that is how that happened. He he said, if you guys have enough songs for a record, I'd like to hear them. And then I'll go ahead and pay the recording fees for you guys to go and and record everything. And it was uh, dude, it was I, I don't know how much money was spent, but we could 
the budget was such that we were only able to do two weekends at West Beach. So a uh, Saturday and a Sunday, and then the following week, a Saturday and a Sunday. So all of those songs were recorded and mixed in those four days. Wow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was gnarly. And, well, uh, and for as young and, and I, I'll use the term a young and as green as you were, I mean, the record, it, it still has a magic to it. It sounds great. I mean, considering it was his pre pro tools. I mean, you were going, I'm assuming straight to two inch tape, straight to tape. Yeah. There right. wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of thought about like, well, let's do that one again. It was like, if we were able to cut a track without a mistake in it, we were mm-hmm. done. There wasn't like, can you do that one and make it a little bit more emotive on the second line? <laughs> yeah. There wasn't yeah. any of that bullshit, you know? It was just yeah, like, let's do a third harmony on it. <laughs> yeah. So we just got in there and made that record and it was awesome. It was at West Beach, which is what Bill wanted to do with Donnell Cameron. Um, and basically Donnell Cameron, for people that aren't familiar, if it wasn't going to be Brett Gerwitz, it was Don Cameron. Like those were sure. the two engineers at West Beach. And most people know West Beach because they know that Brett uh, co-owned the studio with Don. And of course, all those great Bad Religion records came out of there, mm-hmm. uh, along with a ton of other great stuff. I don't even think they have that location and haven't for a long time, but it was a really great experience. Uh, apparently, the studio might have been owned at Stevie Wonder at one point. Um, really? Yeah, it was. It was a cool studio. It wasn't huge, but it had a, you know, it was long and narrow. It was right down in Hollywood by a bunch of other great studios and stuff that we would later record at. And uh, it just had a, it had a cool vibe. It was, a, it was a great place to work. Um, so Don was, we got along great with Don. Um, we crank, he taught us a lot about recording and how to get good guitar sounds and all that. And, um, and we recorded, I think maybe eight to 10 songs. And this is where my memory is going to fail me a little bit because I don't remember specifically what they were, but, um, some of them would end up being outtakes um, songs like pain, which was a version that ended up we, we pillaged like some of that song and ended rewriting, ended up rewriting it uh, in the form of the song promises on our second record. Oh, okay. And, um, and a couple of, it was a song called who you are, I think. And these songs have resurfaced on comps or whatever throughout the years. Um, there were just a few of the songs that we weren't a hundred percent with, but anyway, we recorded that batch of songs with Don and then we kept going and pl- we played shows very regularly around Southern California. And one night at a show we were doing at Raji's, but this was before the record came out, which was an old kind of well-known venue in Hollywood. We, uh, we met this guy, Jim Goodwin. And we kind of thought it was a put on because Jim came straight up to us and said, Hey, I like your band and I work at this studio. That's this really amazing studio. He goes, I'm a new staff engineer there and uh, they allow me to record bands on the side whenever I want for free. And um, I really like to record your band. Do you have any music? So this was between the time that we recorded that stuff for Don and uh, and then Bill w- had plans to take one of those songs and put them on a comp, which was called A Strange Compilation. It was only printed on vinyl, limited edition. And it was us and Rhythm Collision and Manson Youth and the Bolsheviks and I think Guttermouth and a bu- whatever bands Bill was working with at the time from the Inland Empire. That was the first release we ever appeared on. And then I think we may or may not have put out the 
the No Authority 7-inch as well, okay. which was from those sessions. So, um, and that was leading up to the release of Don't Turn Away. I could okay. be, that could be out of time. I'm not sure if I have the timeline right on that. Anyway, <laughs> do you do you uh, do you recall playing shows prior uh, to the song coming out on, on "Don't Turn Away"? Do you remember the the, the audience reaction when you played "Disconnected" like the first uh, half dozen times or so? Do you remember it, it, it connecting at all or resonating? I, I don't remember that particular song standing out more than than any of the other songs in our set. And hmm, and okay. you mentioned that you wanted to talk more about what ultimately would become of "Disconnected" and how we would re-record it and all that, that really all, all of that focus on that song came from outside forces from more like businessy people, maybe that, that had a better ear than us for what would connect. We were very, we were very just like locked into our little Southern California, you know, Inland Empire, LA, Orange County, San Diego scene. Actually, even well, San Diego. Well, let me al- let me also say that you know back then you would re-record stuff. You you know you, we were so excited. You record something like oh or, or write something You're like I want to record this right now. I want people to hear it. And then you know someone would say, hey, I'm doing the seven inch. Which case in case in point, you mentioned promises a moment ago. I had the first version before Big Choice. It was on I believe Stiff Pole Records out of Florida. Oh yeah. 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 And so like, that's where I first heard the song. Next thing I know that's on big choice as well. You re-recorded it. So that's just something bands did. You know, oh, a lot yeah. of, a lot yeah. of times it, it was outside influences, be it managers or, you know, Hey, your song's getting blown, blown up on K rock. We should maybe re-record it. Uh, yep. there was a n- number of reasons, but, um, so the, the, the record, uh, it, anyway, it's, so we'll, yeah, go I'll ahead. try to make my, my story a little faster. <laughs> maybe I'm no, dragging no, it out too long. No, not dragging um, it at all. I just wanted to make that point. So we recorded that batch of songs with Don and then Bill did a couple small things, but he still wasn't putting out the full length. Meantime, Jim Goodwin said, hey, I'd, I would like to record your band. Uh, I want to work with bands that I like. I like your songs and I'll record you for free. And I was like, dude, this has got to be some kind of put on. Like, I totally didn't believe <laughs> like, it. Who's doing like, this? <laughs> what do you get out of it? And he's like, nothing. I just get the experience. I want to put my name on the records that I like. So I went back to Bill and I said, hey, we have this batch, but we've written another half a dozen songs and we'd like to record them. And then Jim is offering to remix the entire album. And, uh, Bill was like, it's free. I was like, yeah. he's like, you want to do it? <laughs> Said yes. So then we went into a studio called sound castle, which was at the time owned by Keith sweat. It was like a, this R and B kind of vibe. They didn't make <laughs> rock records there really. Or that's, that's crazy. Um, it's gnarly. Right. And this, yeah. was in, this was in silver Lake. And it was a really great con. This was a like compared West Beach was one control room with a console and a live room. That's it. You know, Soundcastle had like three live rooms, a couple of mix rooms. Like it was a big complex. And so we're like, holy shit. Like we've really like hit the big time here. Whatever. <laughs> and uh, and they have so, two couches in the lounge. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and TVs and a refrigerator. So. We were able to, uh, I'm sorry, that next batch of songs we recorded, one of them was Disconnected. So that was the first time we'd ever recorded Disconnected, uh, along with uh, another handful of songs. And and it's failing me right now. I don't actually remember what the rest of those were mm-hmm. um, off the top of my head. Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. 
DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits, to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with the Spotify Canvas Generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. So anyhow, Disconnected was made at Soundcastle with Jim Goodwin for the first time. Um, and that version is what ultimately would be released as Don't Turn Away. So Donnell Cameron has credit on Don't Turn Away for recording, but he didn't do all the songs. He didn't mix everything. So Mm -hmm. he recorded most of the songs. Jim recorded the rest. And then Jim remixed the songs Don had recorded and mixed the new ones as well. So we would have some kind of, you know, uh, consistency sonically for the record. Okay. And we did spend more time at, at Soundcastle. And, I, you know, Jim did give us more direction because we had more time. He'd say, hey, maybe try that line again, sing it this way, or watch your pitch. Or, you know, it was a little bit more of a focused kind of recording session. And um, that is what ultimately ended up being Don't Turn Away. I mean, it was still made on the fly after hours whenever people weren't working, you know, as the side thing and all that. But um, that was what would ultimately end up becoming don't turn away. And that's the version of disconnected that you hear the one. Okay. So, so now I remember hearing the remix, which I really loved. I thought the remix was great. What do you remember the reasoning why you wanted to remix it for the overt EP? Who, who didn't think it was up to snuff from a mix uh, standpoint standard? Um, That was, that was when we moved off of, we'll see. So Dr. Strange made the record and then fat. Um, we made friends with people at fat records, specifically uh, Mike ultimately, but through friends of friends. And, uh, and when fatty liked the record and wanted to pick it up from bill, they were able to make that deal. And then we were at fat, which was better for us because we had access to, you know, way more bands that we could partner up with and tour and everyone over at fat was just more focused on like marketing records and getting them out there. And bill for as rad as it was at the time that he was even willing to spend his own money and, and help us give that, give us that first hand up. Um, once the, once don't turn away was released on Dr. Strange, it was a limited edition. It sold out quick, very quickly. And we, before long, we found ourselves at shows with people going, where can I buy your record? I can't find it anywhere. So fat kind of came in and saved that because they had better distribution, more money. They pressed more records and they never, they basically never let the record go out of print. Um, 
but we decided after the one record on fat, we were starting to be courted from other record labels that weren't independent, the evil major labels. And <laughs> um, they did turn out to be evil as hell. Uh, but I, ha- I had to find that out for myself. I wasn't willing to take anyone else's word for it. <laughs> we uh, all did. <laughs> right. So they were a- actually able to give us a better advance and some tour support. And it, it took me from you know, working in construction to actually being able to have the ability to go on tour. And, and, uh, and that was great. So we made that decision. We ended up on a label called victory music, not to be confused with victory records, the hardcore label. Correct. Um, victory music was some JVC subsidiary. They, they were pretty awful to be honest. Um, it was worse than being on a major. It was being on a, on a smaller version of a major that had major distribution. So, um, all of the red tape bureaucracy and garbage you get with a record label, but without any of the power clout or money behind it. <laughs> right. So they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're floating in between an identity. Like, are we a major? Or are we an indie? You know? And, yeah, and, yeah. For us, it was still a step up, you know, but um, so what ended up happening is when that, when they, we did a deal with them and we're like, cool, we're going to make our second album. It's going to be awesome. And they were like, Oh, wait a second. We just did a deal with polygram uh, for our distribution and we would like to run a release through it with you guys being a punk rock band who no one at this label had any idea what punk rock was, what the scene was about, how to market to people like they knew nothing about it. So they're like, could we do like an EP or something that we can run through our distro system and, and make sure that we are up and running a little bit better before we do a full length? And, and we said, yeah, we could scrape some songs together for an EP. So we, and it was our choice, what songs we used. So we picked some outtakes. We did our new version of I Want, um, A-OK, which was going to appear on our second album. We did Mm -hmm. a version of that and a couple other songs that would eventually appear on, on Big Choice and Disconnected because someone at the label liked it and thought we should uh, release it. But their big idea was that we should re-record it. Um. And I don't think we did. So anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. It might've been our manager at the time. He found this guy, Gaza X, who was a kind of a Hollywood scenester from the punk rock era, but not very well known. I mean, I, I, was I don't say, why know. haven't I, why haven't I heard that name? I've never heard that name. Cause he was kind of a scenester, you know, okay. like, okay. Um, did he do any other stuff? I would know. It, it like, was LA stuff. He had a song called isotope soap or something. It was a little gimmicky and <laughs> maybe a little more new wave than punk rock. Even. <laughs> Anyway, we went, he was our producer and I'm doing that with air quotes as I'm saying that, um, <laughs> we, Chad had joined the band at this point. So we had a second guitar player. We'd done a tour of Europe. Um, we were starting to like get more of our legs as like a, a real touring band that's making records. And, uh, he was like wanted performances. So I think we kept the bass and drums and re-recorded vocals and guitars um, so the original Jim Goodwin stuff was intact and we just layered some new guitars, did some new vocals. He tried to produce it, you know, and, and, and that's the version that you hear on, 
on, on over it. Or I'm sorry, on over it. Okay, yeah. see, I just thought that was a straight up remix, so that was re- redone to a degree, half and half. That's interesting. Okay, yeah, there were some tracks that were just kind of reinforced for that, if yeah. I remember right. Okay, um, we we did more with the the gang vocal on the chorus, and uh, I definitely remember re-recording a bunch of rhythm guitars and stuff for that. Now, is this around well. the time that that, that K Rock started to play the song? Uh, do you remember if this was and was that a reason that you ended up re-recording it for Big Choice yet again? It is, but it was it was so this was unbeknownst to us. OK, um, the people at our new label, when they ran the EP over it through the new distro system, there were people at uh, it gets confusing and I don't want to get too inside baseball here, but um, <laughs> one of the labels under the polygram flag was A&M records. And they specifically were the marketing label for victory that we were on. So A&M did the marketing and polygram, their bigger company was the distribution company. So <clears throat> someone at A&M liked the record a lot and they were cheerleading for us and they slid uh, over, or I'm sorry, disconnected off the over it record to K rock. And we were on tour. We'd already, uh, we hadn't recorded. We hadn't recorded big choice yet. I don't think, but we were getting ready to. So, um, our producer was already set up, uh, Tom Wilson, who had recorded the offsprings, uh-huh. um, smash record. And so that, uh, that made our, for our record label, at least they're like, all right, check that box off. Find a, a producer who's had a hit record in the genre. And then we got Tom. Um, it didn't really work the same for us as it did the offspring because the conditions were completely different. But uh, so we we were getting ready to go in and, and make that record, but we were finishing up a tour. And I remember while we were on tour, I specifically remember this. We were playing a place called Boston's in Phoenix. I don't know if you guys ever played there. This is not that I, not that I recall. Okay. Uh, Maybe Tempe was just outside of Phoenix um, that we'd been playing a bunch. And I got the call from our label and they're like, we have amazing news. You just got added to K rock. And I was huge. (laughs) It was huge. It was huge. And I didn't even really know what that meant at the time. To be honest, I was like, Hey guys, we're on the radio. That's awesome. Right? Like, When's the check coming? <laughs> well, I mean, and you know, to this day, if I'm in Southern California, I still hear that song getting played. And I, and you had to, once that hit on K-Rock, you had to notice your audience triple in, in, in Southern California. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it really blew up our, our California audience in particular. And then, you know, ultimately what disconnected would do for us is it would lead to us playing tons of radio shows all across the country to support it and working that whole network of stuff. But at the end of the day, I think it really remained more of a local phenomenon than anything. It's kind of more of a West coast thing. Mm-hmm. That, that's what's remained, you know? Well, you know, um, and, 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 and just let me forward ahead for a moment while I can, you know, so it, when it came to big choice and I remember, uh, I, I, I bought the cassette, I was still at a cassette and I was delivering pizzas at the time in Gainesville, Florida. And I had this black truck and I remember getting it and popping it in. And I was so I might even afforded it because I was just to, to the song. Uh, but, well, two things. Uh, A-OK was also, I believe, on that seven inch that promises out of Stiff Pole Records. So I think that okay. was a, I think that was a re-recording on Big Choice. 
Um, I could be wrong, but I remember, I specifically remember forwarding because I, I was like, I got to hear the new version of Disconnected. And <laughs> it, it never had the charm of, of the one that was recorded cheaply for no money to, to me. What, how'd you feel about the, the, the it third? It probably movie? didn't because we didn't want to put it on big. You choice. could tell you could. We and did we, not, I mean, that yeah. the whole. So I remember being on tour. Like I said, we found out we were on the radio. And then the next call was, we want you to add disconnected to big choice. And we're like, no way in hell, man, that record is done. You know, we were trying to be artists and be purists about uh-huh. everything. And, uh, and dude, you remember this because we both came up through the nineties, uh, there was a time when punk rock bands were in danger of being labeled a sellout. And it was a constant threat that we lived through that kill rock stars era. Of, uh, you know, it was, and you it, was, anything, it was, it was anything flashy or you have any success whatsoever. You've got the punk police on your tail and they're going to decide whether or not you're cool or not cool or a sellout or, or you're, if you're down and, and we just constantly struggled with that through the nineties. So, and within our own band as well. And I remember that was just such a giant argument as we're traveling in, in our airport van that we'd converted. Um, and we we're having this big major discussion, like, do we put this song on? Don't we? And I think half of us, like I was one of the advocates. I was like, look, dude, there's no guarantees in this business. We have a little lightning in a bottle right now. We can shoot ourselves in the foot and say no and risk not ever getting airplay again, or we can roll with it. Is it, you know, is it palpable or I mean, is it palatable to us as artists? Not so much, but maybe there's a way we can make it less, you know, less horrible. <laughs> well, you made the, in my opinion, I would, I wouldn't have done anything different. You made the, the, the best choice you could have made. I mean, you had, you had to, and, and looking back, I, I, I now you jogged a memory of, I remember you guys had like a, it was like a canned thing before the song on big choice. Like guys, should we do this? Or this is a sellout yes. move or something. Yeah. Yes. So we went back like, and if you remember like major labels lived in fear of punk rock bands at that time too. And because it was pop punk was exploding and they knew there was a lot of money to be made. So you knew we, I mean, we weren't a big band, but we had a little bit of power over our label too. Cause they, they didn't want to drop us. They just paid all this money. And so we were kind of being like spoiled brats a little bit like, well, we'll do it, but here are our demands. And our demands were that it appears as a bonus track on the record. So that it would be clear that it wasn't part of our, current artistic selection of songs for a record <laughs> which almost yeah. made it stand out worse <laughs> i know right <laughs> and then we had to reinforce that idea by adding a cover so there would be two bonus tracks and that's why we put bikeage on the record right um also we thought that was a move to be super credible because we were giving props to like one of the most defining pop punk bands of all time uh and and we said you have to record the skit we want you guys in the studio and we want it on tape, whether it's a joke or not, of us expressing our unwillingness to do the song, and then you guys have to be the bad guys. And they're like, we'll do it. They were, they were totally down. So we went in the studio just to specifically <laughs> record that sketch and nothing yeah. else. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I remember that. ad libbed. It was just off the cuff. You know, we're yeah. like, all right, here's how it's going to go. You say this, we'll say this. And then <laughs> we just kind of got into it. It was very organic because it was like we weren't reading from scripts or anything. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I think by that time you can sort of hear that our hearts weren't really in it. Like there are well, like, we've, we've, earlier we've done versions a, are a little we've, more. 
we've done intense. the same done the same thing where we we you know made a recording for twelve hundred bucks and then we went with the big time producer and re recorded it for a hundred grand, and the spark's not there because we didn't want to do it. There's so much to be said about emotion and heart and soul that comes through the microphones and through the wires of the guitar and through the drumsticks onto a recording that you just can't replicate if if you just don't want to do it. You can ultimately hear that 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 magic that's not there. Yeah, I mean. I think these, uh, the recording process, the songwriting and recording process, they tend to take a life of their own on. Right. And, and if you, we both had experience with this and I couldn't name, you can name what record you've done this on. Cause I wouldn't know, but, um, if you've ever made, or you, you, we both made records that are quick, you know, maybe you're, you're doing it within a month, all the songwriting, all the recording, everything, boom, done out you keep this momentum going through that process and there's an excitement and a passion and a momentum that doesn't fade. But then if you take like six months, nine months to make a record and maybe you record here for a month and then you take a couple months off and then you get back to it later and then maybe it's mixed three months later, it's really difficult to keep that momentum up through that process. So and the, spot, and the spontaneity. Yeah. So when you make a song and it's new and it's exciting, it might be raw and it might, you know, not be very well refined, like touring would make it into or whatever. But uh, there's usually a spark in that 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 makes it exciting. And then to revisit it six months later, when you've already written a whole other batch of songs or you're on to something else creatively, it's sometimes it's difficult. Whether I mean, the whole I want to, I don't want to plays a role but i think what's really at the core of that is is uh you've just sort of lost your steam for it you know these are this is a fluid it's a fluid thing even you know being at this for as long as we have and and we largely play live our music from the early uh part of our catalog even now mm -hmm. um i've gone through several phases with that music as as a performer as an artist you know like it feels different to me now than it did when I was 25, but through each of these phases of my own life and my own tastes and music and my emotional connection to the music, you find different ways to connect to it. Right. And then the songs start to have these different uh, perspectives or, or your life kind of, uh, you find different ways to apply the not only the meaning but the emotion of the songs to your life and where you're at because you know when you're a touring band and you do it for decades you're not the same person through those decades right for, and for if you sure can't continue if you can't continue to find a connection to the music that resonates with your audience then you're going to be out there going through the motions playing it too right so there's that aspect of it but I think it's hard. It, well, that aspect of it, I think, is why live records work, right? Because mm -hmm. you continue to relate to the music that you play live and you can give it the fire of the person you are at that point in time. Um, but when you're dealing in a much shorter time period, say a year, and you record a song and then you within that year you go and re-record it, it's like you're trying to beat the demo or you're trying to recreate some magic that happened. It just doesn't work most of the time. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, uh, everything you said is, is, is spot on. It's, uh, <laughs> it's so funny how, how, you know, this is such a, 
most of us as musicians were forward thinkers. It's like, yeah, I recorded that yesterday. What's next? I want to move on. But then 25 years later, you end up, you're still playing that song because those songs now have memories attached to them that for all those fans, then those memories are why they're still coming to see you play, you know, and, and our largely our catalog is from the early days that we play live because they've had the longest time to, to resonate with the fans uh, as the years have went by. Um, And, and, you know, People have asked, I'm sure you've been asked, this, oh, aren't you sick of playing that song or that song? Every time I get on stage and play whatever, Gainesville Rock City, it's like the first time again when you get that energy from the crowd. Because I know you're not sitting around when we get off the, the podcast here, Trevor, and probably picking up a guitar and playing Disconnected for the fun of it. Uh, you know, <laughs> no. it, just, it, it that doesn't happen, right? right but right. but that energy and the love for that song, uh, it comes right back when, when, we, when we get on stage. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, um, it's, uh, it's, if it's a continual process for you, some people don't have bands for 20, 30 years. Some people do it for five years and it's over or 10, but, um, yeah, if you have any longevity at it, you, you continue to find ways to connect emotionally with the songs that are older. And I guess the point I was trying to make is that's different from, that short period of time <laughs> when a song yeah. can just be beaten into the ground or overthought, you know? Sure. So it's better to get that record made and released and live with it and make the commitment to that. You know, records are like a snapshot in time. So yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And when you re-record songs, like we have disconnected, you can, it's like going through a photo album, you know, you listen to the song, you're like, Oh yeah, that was that time. And you can kind of hear the the era in the music, you know? takes you right back well we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here uh you know i want to thank you so much for taking the time um i'm when when we uh, get off the line here i'm gonna go to your wikipedia page and fix all the stuff that's wrong with disconnected excellent Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna set those bastards straight um trevor uh what would you like the the listeners to know what what do you have going on personally with face to face uh let everybody know well um like like most other bands right now, we're we're eagerly awaiting the uh, the approval to get back out on tour um, when it's going to be safe for everyone. Um, ho- we're celebrating our 25th year of the second album, Big Choice, that we've been talking about on, throughout this podcast. Congratulations! And, uh, it's a bummer because we're not able to do any shows <laughs> in yeah. honor of it. We had a lot of stuff planned, so. Uh, maybe by the end of the year, we'll see something. Um, we're eagerly awaiting the opportunity to get back out and play live. But other than that, um, we have been, uh, putting the finishing touches on, on a, on our, what would be our 10th studio album. And, uh, hopefully that will be released by the end of the year or potentially early next year. So that's, that's been a lot of fun talking about all this writing and, and, and recording and the processes that we've been, we've been right in it. And yeah. uh, so we're looking forward to to being able to share those songs with everybody too, real soon. Awesome. Well, I am looking forward, as I, I'm sure all our listeners are. So again, thank you for making the time to uh, to discuss this, and I'm super stoked that you you picked Disconnected. Yeah, man, great talking with you. I look forward to us hanging out again soon. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel 
They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know, where each week I will preview a select band of my choice that you may or may not know. If you'd like your band to be previewed on Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. All I ask for is a good quality recording of a song you feel best represents your band. This week's featured band is What You're Made Of from Sydney, Australia, featuring Jeremy McCowage on lead vocals, Liam Henderson on bass, Bailey Brown on lead guitar, Anthony Moon on rhythm guitar, and Sam Henderson on drums. You can find their music on Spotify. And I got to hand it to these guys. They got the uh, best song title so far on the band you might not know segment. Here's a snippet of their song, What Does Marcellus Wallace Look Like? The Rap with Chris and Chris. So hell yeah, man. Disconnected. I have very fond memories of being a teenager and being in my buddy Mike Kowalchuk's driveway, skateboarding. He had built a couple little ramps and listening to Disconnected in a CD boombox and and skating to it. It's a perfect song to skate to. It's an awesome punk rock song. It's like a very definitive 90s punk rock song so awesome and it was so cool to hear the story behind it yeah man what a what a driving riff that is you know i i, I remember not maybe the first time i heard it but i remember the first time uh, i heard face to face and i was just blown away uh their their melodies and song structures uh were instantly catchy and uh i was convinced that that this band was going to be at the time i'm like these guys are going to be the, the the biggest punk band ever and they've had an amazing career not to take anything away from them but uh i just yeah i i thought the the, <laughs> the world was theirs i just always loved their songs and and this song in particular just has legs it's just the one defining song and i was i was so stoked that uh, trevor decided to discuss it Right. I didn't realize that it still had this radio presence in California. You know, I'm all the way in Pittsburgh and, you know, on the radio, we hear Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But, you know, we're not hearing too much punk rock. And I didn't realize until this interview that that was something that you would still regularly hear on the radio in Southern California. Oh, and I, well, yeah, I wasn't making that up. That's the honest truth. Every time I'm out there, it'll be like, you know, sandwiched between uh, Pearl Jam and, and uh, uh, Smashing Pumpkins will be disconnected. <laughs> it's like wow. uh, it's a staple out there. And yeah, it's just kind of woven into the uh, Southern California fabric, so to speak. Right. And, and so the version that you hear on the radio, is it the big choice version or is it the original or, or what? Because I know we, you guys had talked about that. And you guys had also talked about how you can't really capture the magic on the re-recording of a song. Uh, so do you remember which version it was? 
if, as far as I remember and, and know, every time it's it's the first version. It's the one on on wow. the original original release. Yeah, it's there's something about that version. Maybe it's not as sonically clean or as played as technically proficient uh, as the big choice version, but there's there's some unbridled energy there that uh, that lightning in a bottle stuff. You know, we talk about uh, how songs are are written quickly, and and, and in this case, this song was uh, according to Trevor uh, uh, recorded quickly. It was it was put out there, and uh, it just is, has resonated with people. It's just the d- definitive version of the song, in my opinion. Right, and it was interesting how he said that they didn't necessarily think that song was special or stood out from the rest of the songs that they were recording at the time. So it's really interesting how people latch on to songs, and and I can speak to that because that was the song from Don't Turn Away that stood out to me, Uh, and it wasn't particularly because I had heard it otherwise. I didn't hear it like on some comp or something like that. I just that song stood out to me and it might be the, it might be that, you know, like that, that thing, which he had talked about that they had kind of been inspired by that Fugazi, that Fugazi song, uh, that it's just undeniably catchy, you know? And, and obviously the melodies and the lyrics just drove it home, (laughs) but, uh, there's something about that. That's really cool. Oh yeah, for sure, and it's not necessarily even my my favorite face to face song. It's not there. I I, I have other favorites, uh, but definitely undeniable and definitely instantly catchy, and and it's become their signature song. I love the song, but they have a, a ton of amazing songs. And how many times have we heard that in the episode where it was just another song in the batch of songs that the band was recording that that somehow became uh, uh, bigger than life amongst the fans. It's it's uh it's an incredible story that we we keep hearing over and over. And you've experienced that. I know that I've experienced that with Punchline, with which songs stick out to people. Uh, and you've experienced that in Less Than Jake. You guys didn't necessarily know which songs people were going to love. Did you think people were going to love Johnny Quest Thinks Were Sellouts so much? I, I don't think we were thinking about it. I was 19 when I wrote right. that. So it was just, an, you know, it was just a song that we wrote one night over a few beers at our warehouse. You know, it wasn't any grandmaster plan that, oh, people are going to love this song. And we just started playing it. And it, but quickly, very early on, it became one of those songs that uh, people were requesting and wanted to hear. And, and it became it, it, it. I keep saying it, but it took on a life of itself that that the band at some point you have no control over that the fans dictate that right for sure and punchline i had that experience as an old punchline song but we had this song called heart transplant that i don't know we recorded our album action and we thought that as a whole that we were really proud of the album but that song something about that song i think with with our song it was one of those relationship songs not that all not that most of our songs at that time weren't that (laughs) but there's just yeah sometimes there's just something about a song that uh really people just latch on to and you can't explain it yeah, and and again, it was really cool. I thought that that Trevor uh, not only picked this song, but he's uh, another artist that is kind of humble about it. You know, uh, for many reasons, uh, people get sick of talking about their hit, and certainly he's he's probably done his fair share of uh, talking about disconnected over the years. But he was uh, very forthcoming and, and humble with it, and it, it to me, it just made for for a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Hell yeah, man! So did I. All right, everybody. I want to thank you once again for your absolute. 
uh, generosity for the charity this month, which is Big Brothers and Big Sisters of the Laurel Region. Uh, thank you so much for your donations. It's uh, it's a wonderful cause, and we feel feel so uh, so happy to be able to help them out. It's uh, been a been a rough year for uh, for charities and, and donations, and uh, you know we here at Krista makes a podcast are just trying to to give back uh, to to wonderful organizations, and we want to thank each and every one of you. Thank you so much. And you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's a free podcast. We're not charging anything. So even if you could donate a buck or two bucks, uh, less than the cost of a beer, if you would go out to a bar or something, uh, to our monthly uh, organizations, uh, we'd really appreciate it. It's ChrisDemakesADifference.com. And, uh, you know, the, the, a dollar or two. Um, among thousands of people could go a long way. So yeah, thank you guys. Yes, and uh, if you'd like to record a first version of your song, I know some place that they, that people could do that at, Chris. You do? I certainly no. do. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I've mentioned recently that uh, we musicians are, are, are trying to navigate our way through not being able to tour right now. And uh, everybody in my band, I'm so proud of everybody. We all have our own little projects going on. And I want to give a shout out right now to our drummer, Mr. Matt Yonker. We also call him Matt Drastic. He owns a studio in Nashville. He'd love to record, mix, master, uh, produce your record. Uh, it's called Drastic Sounds Studio. Yeah, Matt's studio is killer. I just recorded recorded a couple songs with him a couple weeks ago uh, for, for a, a side project I have coming out. And uh, he's just, uh, he's a blast to work with. He's got a bunch of great gear, guitars. Uh, if you sweet talk to me, he might even, uh, might even play on your record. He's a hell of a drummer. Uh, <laughs> you could reach him at drasticsounds.com. That'll link to his Instagram where you can direct message him, or you can email him at drasticsoundstn at gmail.com. That's drasticsoundstn at gmail.com and he will take good care of you he comes highly recommended and uh tell him that i said hello yeah and i can testify to that i've heard i heard the recordings you were talking about and i've heard a lot of stuff that matt has recorded it sounds awesome matt's an awesome guy i i can't imagine how cool it would be to spend uh several days in a row with him recording music and yes he's an awesome drummer too so yeah no uh, he's yeah. he, he's I'll really second that <laughs> thanks chris now he's really easy to work with and uh the great thing is if you even if you're not in nashville and you're not going to actually physically be there to record you can send him your projects uh, to, to mix and master he does a, an amazing job with that so uh please hit him up that'd be awesome and uh man i'm gonna i'm gonna steal your words here chris uh, another great episode this week man yep we are like 18 episodes in and i feel like they've all been five-star episodes and if you don't believe me you could look at our reviews on itunes because people are giving us mad five stars <laughs> and if you haven't done that yet go leave us a review we like we like reviews whether it's just the stars or if you want to write something what's really cool is sometimes somebody will write something in the reviews and then i'll screenshot it and send it to chris and then we both both of our hearts swell and we feel we feel really happy and it makes us want to make podcasts forever so uh yeah thank you guys for that if you haven't done it yet maybe do that and if you get a chance please join our facebook podcast group it's uh krista makes a podcast facebook group we'd love to uh to have you join us there it's a lot of fun and uh yeah until next week we'll see you then Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, 
to Fat Mike from No Effects and Ian McKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.